The Athletic. Good morning. Welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Wednesday the 16th of August. I'm Michael Bailey and today we're asking... What awaits Neymar as he swaps Paris for Saudi Arabia? Jordan Henderson was playing in 35 degrees Celsius and he looked like a boxer whose legs had gone. You know, the players rather than dazzling, they're coping. Why are Chelsea at it again as they pursue yet another Premier League star? They're getting one of the most exciting wingers in the Premier League. And in the World Cup, what do England and Australia make of this so-called sporting rivalry? I do get a sense of frustration that they keep getting asked about this rivalry when actually all they care about is... Uh, is the battle that's in front of them. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Michael Bailey. We start with one of football's biggest names in recent years. Brazilian forward Neymar, now 31, has officially left French champions Paris Saint-Germain and become the latest star to join Saudi Arabia's Pro League. Neymar has signed a two-year deal after Riyadh-based club Al-Hilal agreed an £80 million fee. That's $102 million. It comes after Al-Hilal's approach for another PSG forward, Kylian Mbappe, was rejected by the player earlier in the summer. For Neymar, it ends his decade in Europe, winning two La Liga titles and a Champions League with Barcelona, as well as five titles in six seasons in Paris. Peter Rutzler covers PSG for The Athletic. Peter, how has this Neymar deal come about? Neymar was in a really interesting, open position coming into this summer. Uh, you had PSG wanting to go in a new direction, talking about moving away from their Galacticos era, the big names, the bling bling. And Neymar, of course, is sort of the symbol of that. You know, where does he fit into the, all this? There was a sense that maybe with Luis Enrique coming in, his former coach at Barcelona, that he might get a, a new start. But it sort of became apparent that his future may not lie at PSG, or at least that that's not what the coach ideally would have wanted. He did go on tour, unlike Kylian Mbappe, to South Korea and Japan. Uh, he made his return from injury out there, came back and was told by the coach that it was not in his plans. And really, if there wasn't the Saudi Arabian interest, it's hard to see where he, he may well have gone because they really had the only ones who could offer that financial firepower that could pull him away from, from Paris. So how will his years in Paris be viewed, Pete, by those he leaves behind in France? I think a lot of people will be conflicted and I think the overriding emotion may well be frustration and regret a little bit too. Neymar was signed with the view that PSG would go on to sort of conquer Europe and that didn't really happen. They didn't win the Champions League. And I think even on an individual level, you know, Neymar was supposed to step out of the Lionel Messi's shadow, wasn't it? That was the, that was the narrative. And he, never, he was never able to do that, one, because he had Kylian Mbappe to share it with, but also never really hit those heights. There's no Ballon d'Or to, to speak of. And I think when people in France and when PSG supporters, when, when the league as a whole look back, I think there's no doubt that he leaves a legacy. This period for PSG, as much as it didn't bring European success, has been transformative, more off the field than necessarily on it. But certainly a sense of frustration at the unfulfilled promise of a, an immensely talented footballer who, whenever he did play, tended to entertain. It was just things like his off-field antics, the parties, the distractions that took away from that and left that sense of um, what might have been. 
Neymar is one of several players to make the move to Saudi Arabia this summer. The Athletics' Andrew Hankinson has just now returned from a visit to the kingdom to sample its domestic football. And he joins us now. Andrew, from your experience, what awaits Neymar in the Saudi Pro League? Two big takeaways, really. The, the first one is attendances. The first match I went to was Al-Ali versus Al-Hazem, and it was pretty packed. The second match I went to was Al Riyadh up in Riyadh. And I mean, I think there was less than a thousand people there. And the third match I went to was in Demand, that was Al Latifak, where Jordan Henderson was making his debut, you know, this big star. And it was their first match of the season. And we're told that the stadium's capacity of 35,000, it didn't look quite that to me. But, you know, it was half full. And a third of the people who were there were our NASA fans. So that was really shocking. And then the, the other big thing is the heat. So Stephen Gerrard talked about this last night in his press conference where he said, you know, you can read about it, but it's very different when you're there. Jordan Henderson was playing in 35 degrees Celsius and he looked like a boxer whose legs had gone. You know, the players rather than dazzling, they're coping. For more on Neymar, subscribe to the Athletic Football Podcast where Ayo Akinwalere and the team will have a very special episode for you later today. The spending from Saudi Arabia has been flowing all summer and you can say the same for Chelsea. On Monday, the West London club confirmed its £115 million signing of Moises Casado, their 10th signing of the summer. Then, yesterday, not only did Chelsea finally get their £58 million deal agreed with Southampton for midfielder Romeo Lavia, they also activated a £35 million release clause in the contract of Crystal Palace and France under-21 forward Michael Elise. The deal is not done yet, but Chelsea do expect to complete a lease signing in due course. Matt Woosnam is our Crystal Palace correspondent. Matt, I know you're probably hoping he won't be sold, but what sort of player would Chelsea be getting if they get this deal done? If Chelsea get the deal done, then they're getting one of the most exciting wingers in the Premier League. He's extremely confident in his own ability. He's very ambitious. He's very exciting and he's great on the ball. He loves to sort of hug the touchline, the right-hand side and cut in on his left and come inside and either cross it or, or take a shot on or, or draw a foul from the defender. He's quite quick. He's clever in the way that he draws the defender in and then sort of he sort of relishes a, a one-on-one with the defender and then to sort of knock it past them and, and run onto it or to use a bit of skill to get past the player. And actually, defensively, he's really improved as well. He can, he's you know, happy to go back and do the defensive work and work for the team. So it's not all entirely about his attacking play. It is also about his defensive work. But, but also on the attacking side, he's, he's good at set pieces. He scored a late goal, late equaliser against Manchester United last season at Celeste Park with an outstanding free kick. They're getting a, a really exciting young player. Now, release clauses have their good and bad points, Matt. At £35 million, though, does this feel a little bit cheap to you? There's no doubt that Michael Elise is worth £35 million and that this is a very good deal for Chelsea. It's a deal that guarantees Palace £35 million, but he's worth a lot more than that. He's a very good young player. He's only 21. He's got a lot of improvement that he can still do, even though he is, you know, he's, he's playing at a really high level. Palace would have been looking for you know, well over 50 million to have sold him if, if the clause wasn't there. But ultimately, Palace took advantage of a £8 million release clause in his Reading contract to sign him in the summer of 2021. 
and offering him a release clause is, was one of the ways that they were able to sign him. So it is a difficult thing for Palace to take and you know, Palace fans will rightly you know, and understandably be very gutted if this deal does get concluded. So it is, is a real shame, but he's certainly worth more than, than the money that Palace are going to get for him. Finally, Matt, they have already lost Wilfred Zaha this summer. How would losing Elise impact Palace from here? It will leave a massive void. Um, he was outstanding last season. He really came of age. He made 40 appearances, scored several goals, claimed the fourth highest total of assists in the league, became the first Palace player to claim 10 assists or more in a season and won the Palace Players Player of the Year award. So he was, you know, he was excellent. It would leave them very light up front in, in the wide areas with Jordan Ayew as their only recognised senior winger. So that would be a really difficult thing to do. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. Let's switch from men's football to the women's game, where if you're lucky to be up early enough, you get to catch the second semi-final of this year's World Cup. Co-hosts Australia and European champions England kick off at 11am UK time, that's 6am Eastern, in Sydney's Stadium Australia, battling for a place in the same stadium for Sunday's final. Awaiting them will be Spain, who beat Sweden 2-1 yesterday. All three goals came in the final 10 minutes. Chloe Morgan is the Athletics or Women's Football Editor and she joins us now. Chloe, you've been at the pre-match press conferences for England and Australia. What's the mood in both camps? Yeah, I was down at the uh, Match Day Minus One press conferences yesterday at Stadium Australia. And yeah, we spoke to Tony Gustafsson first. But he was very much saying that he's excited for the, the massive crowd, all the support that's going to get behind them as they enter the semi-final of the competition. And um, obviously, I think they're going to use the support more of not, not a sense of pressure, but there seems to be a sense that the support is actually going to bolster them and, and buoy them up. And that every time they've gone into the airports or the stadiums, they've had fans around them shouting and cheering support. So I think that's sort of the general a general vibe in the uh, the Australia camp. And for Serena Regan, she was sort of saying, well, even though they've felt a face pressure already in this competition, they face a massive crowd, a uh, massive fan base in there in the Colombian game. So I think they're kind of used to it uh, from last week's match. And also the fact that everyone out here has been so amazing and welcoming to them. But I think everyone's just excited to play in front of a massive crowd, in front of one of the biggest or the biggest Women's World Cup that we've ever seen. So everyone's just taking it very positively. And I think everyone's ready to, to go into the game fighting and giving everything they've got. There's been a lot of talk about rivalry, especially given the amount of times England and Australia have faced each other over this summer, including in the cricket. Uh, but does that rivalry, Chloe, actually exist between these two teams? For most of what Serena and, uh, and both Tony were saying was that even though there was obviously a rivalry, it's a rivalry that all of them have faced throughout the competition from the USA, from Brazil, from Germany, and that every team is a rivalry rather than it being a specific country-to-country one. So I do get a sense of frustration that they keep getting asked about this rivalry when actually all they care about is uh, is the battle that's in front of them. So yeah, whilst it's a, it's a big matchup, I don't think the rivalry thing is a, it's a bit of a non-starter. The winner faces Spain. Chloe, a quick word on their victory over Sweden. It wasn't a classic, but deserved finalists. An absolutely incredible result uh, from Spain uh, last night. Uh, walking away 2-1. Obviously, you know, Pirelo doing an absolutely massive goal. I mean, she came through for them in the, in the previous game. 
And now I've got into a situation where it's their first final and now heading into the final on, on Sunday, which they're all looking forward to. But I think there's a little bit of a sense of, um, you know, what's going to be said about Jorge Vilda. Does anyone want this win accredited to him? But I think the focus now should be on the players and what they've achieved and making history for Spain because, you know, and inspiring the next generation because that, that should be the focus of the competition because it's the players on the pitch that have done that. But yeah, very tasty matchup last night. Obviously, the goals only come in very late in, in the game. But yeah, Spain are a bit of a force to be reckoned with. So I'm looking forward to seeing them in their first final. Time for the telly. And if you are in time, then you can catch that Australia versus England World Cup semi-final on BBC Sport in the UK, where kickoff is 11am, and on Fox in the US from 6am Eastern. Then tonight, we have the UEFA Super Cup, where last season's Champions League winners Manchester City face the Europa League winners Sevilla in Greece. That one kicks off at 8pm in the UK on TNT Sports 1 or 3pm Eastern live on CBS Sports Network. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. I've been Michael Bailey. Your producer was Abby Patterson and your executive producer was Ian McIntosh. If this is your first time listening, then it's great to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and you're more than welcome to drop us a review. Adam Leventhal will be with you tomorrow morning. In the meantime, have a great day. The Athletic.